0: This podcast discusses content that may be triggering for some listeners. Please be advised, discussions include gambling language, types of gambling, and addiction. Hello, and welcome to the Hidden Addiction Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Mid Hudson Problem Gambling Resource Center under the New York Council on Problem Gambling. Across New York State, we have seven resource centers dedicated to connecting individuals to care. We are here to increase awareness about problem gambling and advocate for support services for persons adversely affected by problem gambling. Gambling is defined as risking something of value on a game of chance. There can be many types of gambling, and it can affect anyone at any time in their life. It may not be talked about often and kept in the dark, but we hope this podcast sheds light on the hidden addiction of gambling and brings forth resources and information for you to use. Hello, welcome to the Hidden Addiction Podcast. This is your host, Leilani Isa reed Um, I give thanks. It is the 12th month of the calendar year, December. We have made it through. Give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. Um, And today we have two special people here. First, it is my coworker, Shauna, and she is one of the program managers in the New York City um, region. And we have the wonderful Dr. Deborah Haskins, who is an amazing, amazing advocate for, Problem gambling, and especially for recognizing and advocating and doing and educating people um, about. how the marginalized communities are affected um what we need to do to improve our outcomes and outreach and everything in between and i so appreciate her and the work that she has done she's done other things outside of problem gambling which she will get into and explain but we're just so grateful and blessed to have her um with us on this 12th month of the last month of the year (laughs) Welcome, Dr. Haskins. Thank okay. you. Thank
1: you. I just want to thank you. I'm very excited to two champions and soldiers in this field of helping to heal the world. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: So let's get into it. Um, what how, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get into this work of uh, problem gambling, gambling addiction?
1: Okay. Thank you. Of
0: um, I you know, it, it definitely,
1: I got into the field, I would say by accident, which really describes oftentimes what happens in problem gambling and high-risk gambling. Uh, uh, My previous career was in student development at uh, universities and colleges, and I was a college counselor, and I got to a place in my own uh, work, working at a community college, a very progressive community college in the state of Maryland. I was in a part of Maryland that has one of the highest per capita incomes um, in the United States. And I was remember sitting there as a counselor and saying, you know, I don't really feel like I'm helping people who really need help. And I think a big part of that is, uh, came about because I was raised by a uh, mom who was a single mom uh, from the country uh south carolina uh who landed in baltimore and uh and i was raised with a steep social justice uh focus in my family you know being an african descent person a person of, of african ancestry um at the time didn't know where i originated from i know now where i am um, Uh, about 50 percent Nigerian. I'm very excited to learn my ancestry DNA uh, uh, in in other West African cultures. But, uh, you know, I was raised in a home where the focus was helping people who don't have resources and who don't have the material resources uh, to, to provide them the best life. And so I just got Started Because I just decided also that for me, I'm raised also in a Christian home where faith and spirit was very important. And when I think about also people of color and cultural communities, uh, many of them didn't have mental health professionals to help them. Uh, you know, back in slavery, there were no therapists, Uh, you know, they prayed and, and, and uh, worshiped, um, you know, their native and indigenous practices and healing, whether it was Christianity or African spirituality. Um, But, you know, they, they depended on the God of their understanding to help free them. And so that was another important part of how I ended up in the field, because, you know, I decided that, You know, I really needed to go back and advance my clinical skills. And I really wanted to do teaching, research and practice. And so I got the Ph.D., but I was very intentional about which Ph.D. I didn't go into clinical psychology. I decided to get my Ph.D. in pastoral counseling because I wanted to integrate spirituality, um, faith and, and indigenous healing wasn't even language. At the time, nobody was talking about indigenous healing. And so I say all that to say that that's how I I landed into problem gambling, because I made this intentional decision to advance my clinical um, skills as well as justice commitment by going back to school. And it was while I was back in a doctoral program during my year long internship which was at the time I was at the Psychiatric Institute of Washington in D.C. Um, and I was I, I made a decision, too, that I really wanted to understand addiction better. Um, I was one of those human beings and counselors that actually believed back then, um, in the 80s when I was trained, that people got high because they were immature. And I think that I had that perception because I also was looking at people in my family and in my community. And I probably, I really didn't understand it from a child's lens. I didn't understand why these people just wouldn't stand up and do what they should to take care of themselves and their family. But I didn't understand that addiction is a disease um, and a brain disease. Uh, And so I decided also that I wanted to understand addiction. And I, I think part of that understanding was also to understand my own, you know, sort of genetics and and community genetics, what's happening in my community as a black person. I see addiction all around, I see alcoholism. Uh and so it was during that year-long internship that uh at the time my supervisor her name was Joanna Franklin. Um, and uh, John and Franklin Roberson, was married um, and passed away in 2013, sadly, um, but she was... She was and is one of the leaders internationally and nationally in disorder gambling. And Joanna was in the state of Maryland where I reside and actually at the time was the clinical supervisor in D.C. and was trying to get the Psych Institute of Washington to create a gambling treatment program within the addiction programs that she was directing. And so I landed there and I had this amazing human being who was a European descent woman who really did the work to understand her own implicit biases and recognized that she needed and we needed to understand the influence of culture. And so Joanna trained me. I met my first gambler um, during that internship year. And then Joanna actually, because I was very uh, intentional about my goal has always been to integrate Uh, you know, services and to make them more culturally adapted and modified and justice and equity focused so that people who don't typically access services would find a home, which is what I say, culture is home. When I look through my lens and I wear bifocals, I see culture, you know, I see culture because this is the world I live in and this is the world the world lives in. And so how is it that we separate that? And Joanna was one person who got it. Um, And she started to introduce me uh, in the community of gambling uh, advocates and problem gambling advocates. The National Council on Problem Gambling was a real active leader Um, and and she was the president of the Maryland Council of Problem Gambling, where where I am now um, serving in that role until the end of this month, and then I will be president emerita, and then will continue as a volunteer. I'm passing the baton um, to Dr. Shandra Parks, and I'm very excited that we have, you know, gearing up new generations of leaders and advocates, but um, I know that's a lot of information, but that's how I got into the field, and Joanna actually was the one introducing me around um, the National Council of Problem Gambling, all the advocates and leaders to say, hey, you gotta get Debbie Haskins to come and train up your workforce and to have you all understand how to serve culturally diverse communities. And so in 1998, uh, Joanna was called by the Michigan Council at the time of uh, problem gambling. And this was when Greektown was opening their first casinos because at that point, people would go into Windsor, Canada to gamble right across the bridge. But now Greektown was opening up its first entertainment venues. And so at the time, there was a European descent executive director of the council who really said, listen, I don't know as a white man how to really support African Americans and, and other cultural communities who are in our communities and are gambling more and, and experiencing high-risk gambling. And as a white man, I don't understand what to do to, to help them. And so Joanna got the call, and that's how I, I really got started in a lot of the consultancy work. And we would actually fly to Michigan starting in 1998 for a full year. Monthly to train up the workforce of mental health practitioners and preventionists to be able to respond to the great needs in the Michigan and you imagine Detroit in particular being a, a community that's experiencing a lot of neighborhood disadvantages and community disadvantages, and so people are gambling more. And I'll talk about that um, also uh, during this podcast. But that's how I got started. I made the intentional decision that I've gotta do more. I can't live in this, you know, middle class, now middle class sort of lifestyle where I may be able to benefit more because I've been able to get access to higher education and work hard and provide opportunities. But even as a black woman with a PhD, as I tell people, it doesn't matter. When I step out in the street, they don't see my PhD. They see me as a black person, as a visible racial person. And the world will then start to respond to me in ways that, you know, attempts to silence me, doesn't see my assets, my strengths, the goodness, my intellect, my mind, my spirit, my strength, my resiliency, the resiliency of our cultures across these many cultures that live um, globally. And so um, that's been my work. I really want to stand up for people who aren't being seen and who, who, Deserve to be treated with respect, and
0: deserve to be seen. That was a lot. That was almost like the whole podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry, I talk too much. I used
0: to no, get. No, 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 no. My mother
1: would say, "Just give her more work." <laughs> I will just be talking. I finished the work, and I just start talking. No. So. <laughs>
0: I, I think you you said you you really you really um, set the ground for you know this conversation because we really want to talk about the systematic barriers that occur within the system of of. Um, of, of problem gambling not just based upon mm-hmm. the the color of your skin but mm-hmm. your your gender preference your yes. your um your income levels your 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 social status your everything mm-hmm. and the one word that you used was the implicit bias of your mm-hmm. mentor and how you know it's so important to recognize our own implicit yes. biases um there's one thing to be uh I think we all, Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's one thing to be racist but then there's yes. also or to have you know to exist within this world of racism but we mm-hmm. all have implicit biases absolutely. that can block us from mm-hmm. seeing people as human beings seeing people for what they are and what they're struggling with and yeah. how we can all help each other as human beings absolutely um, and then you wrapped it up with you know uh, uh your another mentors even stating like, I know I can't do this work and let me move aside because you, mm-hmm. I know that I, I don't know. I don't have the tools, but I know this is needed. And mm-hmm. those are important things to remember in, mm-hmm. in any work that we do is that if we are not the expert or if we don't know, and it's okay not to know. Absolutely.
2: How to move aside and get somebody who does know. And Absolutely. to them for um, realizing because a lot of people are in those positions and I'm sure, you know, while they were saying, let me step aside, there were others who were like, no, 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 that that's fine. So, yeah, that's... To them for recognizing and, you know, being humble, I guess. Absolutely.
1: And, you know, you all have heard about this and you read about it. I mean, that's been a shift in our field in terms of culture, cultural, um, culture and equity is that, you know, we've had these models of cultural competency. um, But the question is, how do you actually ever arrive to competency? And that's the reason why I don't really like the terminology, like expert, you know? I don't like, you know, because I don't don't feel like I'm an expert. You know, an expert means it's almost like you're at a rival destination. Like, I get it, but I don't want to you know, assume this identity of an expert to suggest that I know so much. I mean, we're on this lifelong journey of knowing, and that's where now we're trying to focus more on cultural humility. You Mm -hmm. use the word humility, Shauna, thank you, because humility means that, you know, I need to step aside. I want to humble myself to recognize that I don't know everything that I think I know, or I don't know, you know everything that I, I may need to know. I'm not even conscious or aware that I oftentimes don't know until I'm in this situation. And so um, one of the big issues that surfaces, particularly when you are in practice, you're a practitioner, you're a health provider, whether you're a behavioral health provider, whether you are a preventionist, um, one of the issues is that uh, you know, when people seek out help, they usually want help from people who know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And and so we've been trained in these models where we're supposed to, you know, demonstrate competency because that's what makes us credible. Mm-hmm. And so the last thing that people want to acknowledge or admit is that they don't really know because it goes against, the, you know, what we're supposed to be doing ethically and professionally. But in effect, in effect, we don't know. You know this African uh, uh, American woman who called for help. She says, "I'm looking for an African American therapist who understands African spirituality, because me and my partner are transitioning to that's what we practice." And I had to say right at the referral point, "I don't. I'm African American, yes, but I don't. I'm not." familiar with African spirituality. But what I can commit to you is that I want to create a safe space where you can bring yourself and your partner, where you can trust this relationship and share with me all about who you are. Tell me about your who you are. Even they're going through the process of changing your names. I asked, what name do you want? Is this the name that you have assumed? Well, it's not legal, but I said, but that's your name. Whether it's legal or not, that's the name that you want to be. Yeah. So I can call you that name. So, you know, I think that's what we're, we're talking about, that people really need to be able to step away from sometimes these formal models that don't really create safe spaces where the person can start to open up to you. And so one of the questions you asked was, you know, what are some of the systemic barriers that are Uh, present in this field of problem gambling, and I would say co-occurring disorders as well as mental health. And a big part of it is that, first of all, we know about the social determinants of health. And what is that? That says that about 80% of the conditions conditions we're born into actually predicts um, 80% of what our future is. And so if people aren't born into... Um, safe home environments if they don't have housing security they don't have job security they we have inadequate transportation systems like I'm in Baltimore City and I'm a proud Baltimorean but I have a car there are people who live in communities where in our city the transportation system the bus systems don't link up to get you to the better paying jobs And so one black male is saying to me, what I want is I want to open up a hot dog stand right here where I live so that I can pay my child support. And some people might say that's laughable, but no, this is a person who wants to be his small business ownership, entrepreneur, because that's what, you know, people of color and cultural communities have done for a long time. Um, And they have opened up their small businesses and let's be honest. Starting with running numbers, and running numbers was huge in New York as well as in Chicago, for example. And back in the day, in many of these places, that they ran their own numbers games because that was their way of feeding their families, paying their rent, uh, and uh, providing, you know, uh, security for their loved ones. And then when the legal uh, lottery uh, came to town, it actually shut down these small business owners, although the bingo players, which were primarily white suburban women, were able to still illegally play the games, and they weren't getting arrested as uh, like the black men were getting arrested, for example. And so, you know, we see these disparities in terms of, you know, that's really a condition of systemic racism And then the structural and systemic uh, policies um, and equities that continue to pervade, you know, the world globally. So I'm not, you know, I haven't been everywhere, but I've been to Nova Scotia, for example, um, invited by the black social workers of Nova Scotia and been to uh, Bermuda starting in 2017, uh, where Keith White, who's the executive director, and I started going there to help uh, them you know, get prepared for legalized gambling. And then Dr. Lori Rubel, we bought in to help train the clinicians eventually. But looking at these two countries, for example, alongside the U.S., when we looked at African descent communities, the issues were the same, whether you were in Nova Scotia, because the black social workers of Nova Scotia were doing a lot of great work and wanting to really look at these issues in, in the black community, and then, over in Bermuda, the issues are pretty consistent. And so, you know, communities are marginalized. And then we talk about, as you were saying, um, that, you know, LGBTQ people on the spectrum, as well as people, we have people who experience a lot of homelessness. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the gambling counselors who's an African descent counselor here, and he's on our board. I remember uh, Riley said, he said, "How many of us?" Because he was doing counseling in the homeless shelter. He says, "How many of us would go into the homeless shelter to provide problem gambling treatment?" And the it was like dead silence. And so it really highlights this issue around material poverty. Mm. You know? And I think of Dr. Uh, Lot L O T T who said that we. Um, we have cognitive dissonance around the poor or the material poor because there's nothing poor about a person. That's what she, she said, poor. But the the language we want to use now is materially poor or deep poverty, because to really get in touch with the fact that human beings are not able to take care of themselves in the world and that we have these inequities is too painful for the average person. And so we kind of, we, we hide behind, you know, we, we we try to stay hidden. We don't want to really deal with that because
2: it's which too really hard for interesting, us. Which is really interesting that the um, in professional spaces there is this hiding in order not to deal with an issue. I mean, it really should lend to mm-hmm. us. Fully understanding why materially poor um, people would tra- be trying to engage in, we fall into gambling behavior rather. Yes. You know, an attempt to, you know, better their lives materially.
1: Absolutely.
2: Right? So Absolutely. It, it's almost a, a cyclical thing that these barriers exist. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it oppresses those who are materially poor. Um, the, witnessing the oppression of the material poor um mm-hmm. so then creates a barrier for the professionals who then don't address the barriers creating um so it's like a you know it's a round and round circle um yes I never thought of it that way but now that you've said it um wow
1: <laughs> yeah you way- describe it really well you you sum that up really well you, you're right it's just like You know, first of all, if we look at the training models, and I talk about this a lot, we're still limiting ourselves to these training models that were developed by Freud, a European male, for a very uh, pretty, uh, pretty specific population. Europeans who could commit to scheduling analysis for several times a week, And pay. I'm like, who has time? Nobody can do that. Yet we still are tied to these very limited models. And we haven't been willing to move away from the models. So we still train clinicians to a very individualistic model of health that only supports a small percentage of the population. And so I say to people, People are doing group counseling in their own, they're doing their own group therapy in their own communities. People are doing group therapy in their own communities. Yes. And guess what? Those That group therapy for them works. Mm-hmm. They come out on their porches, they talk to people, they go for. they're hanging out in their community, whether it's they're, you know, talking to the indigenous healers or People are talking to their hairstylists, their barbers, you know, their neighbors, their family members. Uh, you know, people are doing their own form of group therapy in their own communities. And guess what? They're not coming to us because they don't trust, and they have good reason not to because we're still using these outdated models yeah. for the most part. Isn't and it? That- isn't it amazing that we're still tied? To these very
0: traditional,
1: outdated models,
0: and this, this is—you know—people are going back to the indigenous practices of community healing, yeah. uh-huh. and um, and I'm grateful for it. Yes. <laughs> um, because it, it we it, it going back to the old I guess proverb <laughs> that mm-hmm. it you know it takes a village to raise a child, but it yes. takes it's gonna take a village for us to come back to ourselves absolutely because we can't do this by ourselves. So yeah, I believe that you know there are a lot of outdated models and we can't just keep on going back to what they consider the forefathers of psychology when that was one-sided that was not speaking to every person, especially, how we have changed as Absolutely. people, as humans over time. So what we what was learned in, you know, back then is not what we are today.
2: Absolutely. I remember having this conversation with um, one of the clinicians in our network about the trans theoretical model of change and mm-hmm. how, you know, it's being held up at all times. It's like the gold standard of um, recovery treatment. But at the same time, I have never seen an article. And please, if someone has, send it my way. I've never seen an article where they address it from a cultural lens.
1: Mm, mm -hmm.
2: You know, when you think about models of care, even from, you know, those who are credited with being the foreparents of these uh, um, thought pieces, over time, you know, this person Mm. builds on another and it's, this has never changed. Yeah, in- yeah, inclusive,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and I'm like, who is doing this research? Why is no one paying attention to this model that is more or less the gold standard of what everyone who in the recovery community yeah. is using? Mm-hmm. Why is no one looking at this? Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you with regards to mm-hmm. um, the population that is studied. Right, they have the resources, mm-hmm. they have the um, readiness.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And have the clinicians to do that work there are some populations um that gambling has not even um reached in terms of treatment where yeah. there's no language in that community that describes yeah. what gambling is
1: yeah um,
2: there's no word for it right yeah. um you know even um the assessment tools that we use are predominantly of you know, a predominant American culture where yeah. the, questions, the questions can't necessarily be interpreted the same way linguistically
1: mm-hmm.
2: with people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
2: So, you know, our clinicians, when we have discussions, you know, it's like, well, how do I translate this? And we're on the phone thinking about how this could be translated to accommodate um
1: yeah. this
2: person's worldview.
1: Yeah, yeah
2: those type of things that need to be studied. And I'm wondering, you know, why are we doing the same studies over and over again, but not being inclusive of the people who were excluded in the first place?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it goes back to what you were highlighting, both of you about, you know, we were talking about implicit bias. I mean, you know, I teach a I teach a diversity course at Hopkins, um, and I'm, you know, uh, you know, I, I retired as a associate professor of counseling from Trinity Washington University, but I've been a sc- scholar practitioner, you know, my whole academic career, um, and you know, I, I knew that I wanted to continue to teach, you know, just part time somewhere. Um, but what's exciting whenever I'm teaching students, whether I'm tr- teaching at Loyola, where I was for 16 years trinity for eight and now at hopkins i'm teaching this diversity uh to a lot of folks who plan to become scientists and uh, physicians and clinicians and researchers and business leaders whatever is that you know really trying to get them to change the paradigms to be willing to innovate um, to develop new uh, models and and not feel tied to uh you know what continues to be replicated. And so, you know, it, it's a, a real challenge because the work that's required to create what we refer to as EMIC models or EMIC assessments is you have to understand the culture is more from a cultural anthropological view. And then you, you it, it's more the model that we're really wanting people to use more is more participatory action research where you collaborate with people in the community or people in the culture, have them provide the knowing and then together you collaborate to create, um, create a treatment program that makes sense for that culture, uh, whatever that, that specific need is Um, For example, which is why I love the work that Victor Ortiz and the team out of Massachusetts has done with their social justice and health equity work in the community. But basically what we're saying is, you know, we see is that a lot of times the researchers, the scholar practitioners, the practitioners, the leaders, if they don't see it as an important priority, and because they haven't been willing to examine their own implicit bias. And because to do that means you have to be willing to give up power. okay? Let's be honest. And you know, I remember seeing something two years ago to say, okay, let's be honest. All these people who have jumped on the diversity, equity, and inclusion bandwagon, including higher education institutions, who are saying we're going to commit more to DEI, let's be honest, to really commit, Means that you're going to have to be willing to give up power, and it's not going to be you're not going to be in the position of power being able to make those decisions and drive everything. If you are really committed to
2: DEI, that means you got to be willing to step aside. I think that should be the clip, um, because, um, what you're saying is. <laughs> You're spot on, Dr. Haskins. So that is definitely um, the clip for, for okay. the day. <laughs> okay. Yeah,
0: so,
1: yeah. I mean, because people, we've been doing DEI all our lives, many of us. The, the terminology just popped up. But I've, you know, mine, yourself, you all, there are lots of us who've been doing this diversity, equity, and inclusion work for a long time before even the language existed. And now all of a sudden, you know, everybody's jumping on to wanting to do and showing the commitment, but they're not really, not everybody's committed. It's because it's the, it's the important brand now. It's, you know, it's like, if you're not saying that you're committed, then people aren't going to trust you. And, it, and sometimes it's more for performance, but people aren't necessarily really committed because to really be committed means you got to be willing to change from inside out. You gotta be willing to change from inside out. Like an example, like you know, I do presentations on diversity, equity, inclusion, strategic planning. Um, and and so for example, it's like who's on your board? Are your boards still European descent wow. populated? Mm-hmm. Do you have diverse boards of directors? And a lot of times we say, Well, we have women, but there are white women on the boards. The question is, do you have diversity on your boards? Are you including community members with lived experiences? People who are leaders in their communities, mm-hmm. they may not have a PhD and they don't need to, you know, they don't need to have, you know, there's wisdom in, from lived experiences. My my uncle was a huge mentor for me and especially in my faith development and spiritual development. Um, and he, he probably didn't finish middle school because a lot of people didn't have the access
0: mm-hmm. for
1: quite some time for, you know, and still, don't, and still don't have, I still don't have access. Absolutely. And so we've got to really be honest and be willing to change inside out. And you pointed out a real um, good, what I've tried to do in my work is to help pr- the practitioners and People who are preventionists and advocates to, but particularly, you know, I've been training practitioners. That's been my work as a council educator. Um, basically, look at, you know, culture equity alongside, unfortunately, we had still, they still tied to traditional models and to make the accommodations. And to become more creative and it requires you to be flexible mm. because even like evidence-based treatment we know is problematic because the populations that are uh, participants in EB, uh, EBTs are not diverse. And so we continue still even in EBTs to have you know undiverse samples that are still driving what's considered to be uh, evidence-based and so an example is recently you know i'm looking at psychological assessment for a particular need and i said well i can't honestly support any instrument where they don't even publish the norms of the group i don't see where the norms they're saying it's acceptable range well I can't support that if you're not even honest enough to say what's the reliability alpha, mm-hmm. you just say acceptable. I mean anybody can say acceptable. I want to see I want to see it. I want to see it because I'm trained as a researcher. Um, what are you talking about? I don't, because these measurements are culturally biased. Yes. And so I cannot endorse any kind of assessment unless I see has been normed, and even with the norming, it's still problematic. We have we have to be able to make the adjustment when we administer the assessment to say, okay, it's inherently biased, so I'm going to have to correct for that, and how I discuss the implications for this person.
2: Yes, even um, even when they do these grand studies, when they do the math, um, universities or by organizations, and they incentivize them.
0: Hmm.
2: That in itself should be reported and stressed. Mm-hmm. So when you roll out an intervention in, let's say, East New York, Brooklyn, Shout okay. out to that area, but when you roll it out in that area, and the program does not have the funding to incentivize, mm-hmm. You incentivize it. So everyone showed up for the five days a week for six weeks without problem. Now we're here trying to do an intervention and we can barely get it past week one because the people in that community have lives, right? And on top of their lives, there's a lot of stressors that absolutely um, prevent them from engaging in in care. I mean, we use it the is. word adherence and compliance, but you know, is it uh-huh. really? When life is happening and the incentive, I don't know how much money you gave the original group to show. This organization doesn't have that. And, you know, that isn't even being spoken about. And they develop the intervention, they roll it out and nobody goes back and checks. Oh, let us check on, you know, what's happening in Philadelphia. Let's check to see if the participants are engaging and grasping the major concepts that we intended to mm-hmm. teach and to model. No one is checking after these. Um, inter- There are just so many things. I don't even want, <laughs> I don't want to belabor it. But I mean, those are things that go into um being inclusive. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole
1: nother podcast of, in and of itself, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. The research. The research, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and we know, you know, research has not been kind to a lot of communities. Like, we're trying to look at the deaf and hard of hearing community in um, looking at problem gambling and gambling mm-hmm. wellness because people with disabilities and say, in this case, people who are deaf and hard of hearing have not been treated equitably and respectfully in the research. Um, And so they're not going to participate in any institution that has marginalized their community. Uh, People who are LGBTQ plus on the spectrum, you know, have not been treated justly and respectfully uh, and and, and lovingly. And so they're not going to participate in any institutional effort that has marginalized their their families their communities i mean we it, it goes on and on and so just because we have a really good idea doesn't mean that i mean people aren't going to sign up
0: for it right i know that um uh i think it was last year early this year uh, i did a um I put, I put together like a presentation for um communities uh who work with the develop uh people who have developmentally uh disabilities okay great and, um And before I could just like, I, and I told them, I said, I don't know a lot about this community, but I know that problem gambling exists Okay. Uh and there is research, there's some research that shows it. So I'm going to present this, but don't take it as I'm presenting to tell you, I want you to give me feedback on as to how how does this translate for your community?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: with Because I am a very visual, I personally am a very visual person, but it doesn't necessarily translate well for them, you yes. know, and they came from all different backgrounds, whether it was visually impaired, hearing impaired, um, intellectually, you know, have intellectual challenges. Um, how I presented it, he said, there's a lot of triggers. So I went back and I said, thank you. Mm. And then we adjust this presentation. That's wonderful. So because, and that's being very cognizant about the community that you're trying to outreach to knowing yeah. that there is research, but you know, you're not the expert, <laughs> you know, you yeah. don't know it all, but you know, there is something as there is something to support that this information needs to be out there. And how can I be better yes. to, um, to meet the needs of this particular community? And we, I, I know that the, 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 the New York council is going to be coming out with a survey where it's going to um, list like a lot of different languages that people can, um, mm-hmm. then we, we're trying to figure out what is, what is their needs, right? Okay, so we're gonna yeah. have it in different languages. It's gonna be, mm-hmm. um, they they did use some of, uh, uh, a few of us who are people, persons of color within the okay. agency to really fine tune this uh, survey. That's great. That's great. I, I also know that we also been working with the Asian population with mm-hmm. um, we had a contract with or still do with a um, with Rachel Mai to really dig deep in what's going on in the Asian population. I think particularly Queens um, or the New York City. Region.
1: OK. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but I think one thing that I believe is that culture and diversity and um, especially when it comes down to ethnicity. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. It's not just yeah. in the pocket of New York City. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and often yeah. we just think because it's such a, it's such a hub. There yeah. are pockets of this state that, um, that have many absolutely. cultures, you know, yes. and and how we best serving them. And then on top of that, like, it's almost like the unforget <laughs> unforgetting, um, forgotten. I'm sorry. Unforgotten, uh, population is the native indigenous people
1: absolutely yeah you know?
0: yes. and yes. because yes they have their own casinos they run their own casinos yeah. that does not mean that there's the problem does not exist there and how we absolutely
1: absolutely and if you haven't seen the um you know i was co-chair with Catherine um hudson elliott uh, another gambling council out of arizona and we just finished our two-year term as uh co-chairs of the DEI subcommittee with the NCPG. And one of the the outcomes that we worked on were these anchor webinars focused on trauma. And so uh, you should have those. If you don't, um, contact Amanda Quintana uh, at the uh, NCPG or I can forward it to you as well. Uh, And so the first one I did was on COVID trauma, the impact. And then one of our subcommittee members, Jennifer LeBlanc, who is an indigenous um, people's um, tribal member, uh, did the anchor webinar on native and indigenous peoples and and does a beautiful job, wonderful job of providing the historical uh, education about addiction and trauma from the beginning into present. And we offer tips. So, and then we have uh, an Asian descent one that's going to be done by Dr. Tim Fong. And then Marilyn Marquez Beckley um, is doing the one for the Latina, Latino, Hispanic, Latinx. It will be done in English and done in Spanish. And these are being sent to the state affiliates so that you can use them for your programming. And the reason why And we're going to do one on the African descent as well. But the reason why we created that series was because we knew that state councils don't have the same equitable funding sources to do diversity, equity, and inclusion programming and community wellness. And we wanted to provide these resources that you could then get creative in your own uh, jurisdictions and and work. So um, we're really proud of that work that we have done. And I'm sure there'll be some other really great creative programming.
0: As you should, it does sound exciting. Thank you. (laughs) Very exciting to get, um, to receive that information and then see how we can incorporate it within the work that we do um, within the the New York Council on Problem Gambling. Shauna, you have any, I guess. I mean, we kind of, I don't know, we kind of went through every question that um that I had in mind. I don't know if you had any comments or questions from Dr. Haskins.
2: Well, I, I really thank you for being here and speaking out on this this mm-hmm. issue and adding your clinical um viewpoints um to this conversation. And I know A lot of practitioners are looking for gambling assistance for their clients. Do you have any suggestions, best practices for them in dealing with clients of other ethnicities or simple Mm -hmm. um, walks of life? Absolutely. I would highly recommend um,
1: And any. First of all, uh, one of the biggest issues um, that we see is a lack of funding. Um, equitably around the globe in terms of not every jurisdiction has gambling treatment. My, my state is offering free gambling treatment, um, and so that continues to be a challenge. But even if your state is providing that, I think the biggest recommendation that I have is that people really need to, at the grassroots level, um, get into the community. Um, If you don't feel comfortable being in the community, because maybe that's a community that you're not familiar with, you don't necessarily know well, you know that if you walk into the community, um, people are going to probably say, why are you here? Um, and they're not going to necessarily trust. But what you want to do is develop relationships with people in the community um, and collaborate with them to Find out, first of all, what are their needs? What do they see as the need in their community? And then together, figure out how you could provide support. I think that is the number one strategy that I would recommend, because what we're doing is we're staying in our own comfortable, protected silos of our treatment centers, um, our preventionist worlds. And for a lot of people have not ever gone into these communities. So, for example, when I used to train uh, psychologists for a year long in diversity, and we met monthly, one of the things I did in the second month was I took them on a driving tour of Baltimore City. Why? Because most of the patients coming to the psychiatric inpatient hospital were coming from this particular urban area. And I wanted them to see what these communities are like. I want you to see the people. I want you to take a look around. They were struck by liquor stores on every corner. No wonder there are high rates of substance abuse. They don't have access to community recovery. We still today don't have gambling anonymous meetings in places that people can get to. Because... conveniently right even if it's online Yeah, know so online that has opened up hugely we're thankful that's one thing that COVID has done is open up access but prior to that you know when when you know and we still people are pivoting but I think that's going to be one of the biggest outcomes that's a huge asset because now we probably don't have to worry about people going in person. But there are some people who feel more comfortable
2: with mm-hmm. the human connection. And so and we, communities we do of still color or seem to be more interested in, in meeting in person. Exactly.
1: They don't. And and then, you know, and one of the biggest challenges, and I know we're out, out of time, but one of the biggest challenges that communities of color, uh, you know, one of the, 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 sort of rules you learn in your family is you don't put your business in the street. And mm-hmm. so they see group, group fellowships as really akin to putting your business in the street. And so there's a lot of cultural resistance. So I would say to practitioners, please begin partnering, number one. Number one, you have to start doing the self-examination, looking at yourself, being able to really, Um, recognize that you have implicit biases. You could look at the Harvard um, implicit bias project and begin taking some of those tests to really look at where do you need to do work. So an example is I made an intentional decision to be able to focus on my challenge with working with European descent men. And why? Because coming from slavery, white men were the ones who marginalized black men and women. And so even to today, there's still challenges there, but I had to intentionally make some deliberate decision to look at that tension in the relationships with white men, because in the therapy arena, when I have a white male client, there is that dynamic. Mm -hmm. I'm a black woman. How likely are they to ever come for help with a black woman? And there's a power difference that is in the greater world, they hold power. Mm -hmm. So that was an intentional goal that I had to make so that I can become more empowered and feeling comfortable in relationships with white men professionally, as well as in the therapeutic arena. So that means that we have to create a developmental plan to work on these issues intentionally Mm -hmm. and don't be, don't feel bad about it. Don't beat yourself up about it. That's what's called ethical practice and effective work and growth and growth. And, you know, there's lots of readings um, begin to look at your organization and try to diversify your organizations you know they shouldn't look just like you it should your board should not look just like you we need to have more diverse boards we need to have more diverse um you know organizations but the real challenge is depending on what the density of the place where you're operating is that also can limit who you're able to get in terms of practitioners and preventionists as well. So there's still hope. And I love this new framework by French and other scholars in 2020 called radical healing. Mm-hmm. Radical healing is a framework that looks at critical consciousness, looking at empowerment and liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other components, but we want to do radical healing in our gambling wellness and recovery Um, And prevention work. And we want to look at lastly, equipping people to problem solve and to address issues before they develop the problem. You know, let's stop focusing on problem gambling and let's start focusing on helping people breathe better just on a regular
0: daily basis. Because breathing also helps with like anxiety and um, feeling out of control. It helps us you center ourselves and ground ourselves into being present and what is happening right now, rather than what is because the anxiety is like what's hap- what's coming at me, and it's, exactly and the breathing just centers us, helps us control it, and say, you know what, I am present, I am here, I am honoring my feelings and emotions right now yes. and let me breathe it in breathe yes. it out <laughs> I love that I needed that today thank you <laughs> yes. like, and I, I am all about like I loved how you said radical healing because radical to me to me to me means that we are thinking outside the box we yes, yes we have we can't even afford mm-hmm. not to do the most we exactly. can't afford not to try to do a little bit of this just to get yeah. to where we need to be, and mm-hmm. everything is not just one one way; it's every way. Absolutely, but it's best for us to ensure that our our individual cells. Are, are are getting to the place where we need to be in at our hole and we can't do that when we're stuck we can't do that when we have a, a limited mindset we cannot mm-hmm. do that when we are just not able to see people as is because when you yeah. initially started you talked about you do have a doctrine but when you step outside that mm-hmm. door people look at you as a black woman and yeah. it's not at all the things that all wonderful things that you accomplished and not even just your accomplishment mm-hmm. educationally just you as a just a human being who have just are amazing and holding space for people yeah. you, know, you are seen as a black woman and in other people's eyes less than
1: yeah, absolutely absolutely
0: and getting it we got to get out of that mindset and absolutely the only thing is being vocal one being vocal about the changes that need to be made Mm-hmm. Um, so that we can all all exist. Like, I want so many people in this field to be well, to yeah. just, and even address addressing their their gambling addiction with grace and being we're taking yeah. responsibility yeah. Um, too. And I think taking responsibility and understanding and forgiving yourself it yes. encompasses that healing, radical healing process. Absolutely. So I'm done. I'm yeah, done. we am
1: i love it i love it and you know my my tag is let's help the 95 percent not just the five percent that seek mm. treatment gambling treatment mm. mm-hmm. okay, let's help both. the 95 percent
0: yes if that's not the hope
1: it's yes, not the message. that's it there <laughs> let's you help
0: go. The 95%. that's the hope and let's not the 95%. five not the five okay Tav, you <laughs> do you have any imparting words you're, you're unmuted. <laughs> oh, Shauna. Okay. Okay. Dr. Haskell, do you have any imparting words?
1: No, I just want people, this is what I tell the gamblers when they call for help in the affected others, is I can assure you this, We there's no cure um, and we can't promise you anything. But this, I can promise you, if you stay in the process, things will get better. Don't stop the process because this is the visual I give them. When you were a little kid and you went roller skating, you fell down and you scraped your knee, your parent or somebody hopefully lovingly cleaned it up. They put a Band-Aid on it. Um, But at a certain point, the Band-Aid has to come off um, because why? It needs to get air. It has to breathe in order for the healing, the radical healing to happen. And so even when you strip the Band-Aid off, it's going to feel intense. Things are going to be hard, but that's part of growth. Okay? Don't stop. Don't jump out of the process. Don't leave the process just because it is uncomfortable, it hurts, it's painful. Stay in the process. Stay in the journey. Reach out. And touch someone who is in recovery, um, a 12-step program, get mental health treatment, talk to your village of people who support you, create a new village who's got your back, okay, if you're estranged from your traditional or normative village, your natural village, but stay in the process. Things will get better. This we can assure you. If you stay in the process, things will get better for you. That we can promise you because we have evidence of that. People who are in recovery two years, one year, five years, 10, 12, 15, 20, 30. um, Things will get better for you. And that's anyone who's struggling today, whether you're a gambler, whether you have an addiction, whether you are hurting from somebody's injury, you know, abuse, uh, trauma, childhood adversity, community adversity, job adversity, whatever it is, you know, stay in the process, find people who care about you, um, that we exist, Mm -hmm. we exist, we're here. Thank you. And on that note,
0: <laughs> that is the end of this podcast. I really truly thank every person um, that ha- is li- has listened has listened to all of our podcast episodes, um, and who will continue to listen to our podcast because there is so much great information. And, and I love um, that we have brought people from all backgrounds, all. Types of life, you know, uh, whether it's persons in faith, women, you know, the affected others. Our last mm-hmm. episode talked specifically about the affected others and their journey in recovery. This has been such a blessing, and 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 also a um, a much needed conversation because we don't talk about, we just don't talk. We do, but we don't talk. And um, the podcast does give us that opportunity to have honest. Um, and needed conversations um that pertain to this world of problem gambling so i thank you dr haskins you're for welcome us. i thank you shauna for being an amazing welcome host. thank you for having me yeah this pleasure. conversation you're all amazing thank
1: you so much yes, thank
0: you do. this is <laughs> an amazing conversation um so if i was to depart on this uh, last episode i I think I'm this is gonna be my last episode for this year. If I do come up with a surprise, <laughs> one more episode, um, that'll be the surprise. But uh I thank you for joining me. I thank you for being here with me. Um and I hope that you go into this 2023 year uh, filled with hope, filled with uh wellness, a well mind and be radical about whatever journey that you are on. Um, because I know there are listeners who may not be struggling with problem gambling or just interested in learning and whatever journey that you on, be radical about your healing, be radical about where you want to go in life and don't let anybody stop you from where you, where you need to go, and how you need to get there because it's your journey and we are here to support you. Of course. Um, and find supports like Dr. Haskins said. It's so important. Support, support, support. So that is it. I will stop because you know I could go on. Um, but you guys just be well. Be well. Thank, Thank you. you. All the best to you as well, Lamani.